Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 330, Dr. Joshua Sijuadi on The Monarchy of the Father. In this episode, a new conversation with Dr. Joshua Sijuadi, visiting lecturer at the London School of Theology, about the uniqueness of the Father. Dr. Sijuadi, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you so much, Dale. I'm so happy to be back. Thank you. So today we're going to discuss your recent piece in religious studies called Building the Monarchy of the Father. And uh, it strikes me that you must have been inspired by the work of uh, Dr. Bo Branson in thinking about the Trinity in this way. Yes, definitely. Bo has had a great influence on my thinking, um, specifically about the Trinity and sort of the reasoning behind adopting something like a monarchical model, because I used to be quite a hard and fast social Trinitarian. And I then decided after reading his work and others that actually I I believe the evidence is pointing in this direction. And so I sort of decided to investigate a little bit further in this article. Now, a reader like me, who's a Unitarian Christian, can't help but notice that on the first page of this article, you quote Unitarian Christians' three favorite texts, which are John 17, 3, John 20, 17, and 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And you say the one God is numerically identical to the Father, Why do you think that's a Trinitarian view and not a Unitarian theology? Because I think there's a few distinctions that need to be in place when we're understanding the notion of Trinitarianism and Unitarianism. Um, I personally believe that the distinction lies in how you are counting or how you're trying to count um, divine persons. And so I would say that you are a Trinitarian if you have three divine persons within your worldview, and you're Unitarian if you have one divine person. And so the issue then of the monarchy of the Father and the idea that God is numerically identical to the Father is not really an issue that I believe plays a part in this distinction between Trinitarianism and Unitarianism. I think this idea is about monotheism. And I don't think I brought this out in my article, but um, I will regularly say to people that I think the issue needs to really be more precisified uh, when we're talking about theism and monotheism and polytheism, because you hear these terms all the time. And some people say, oh, you're Trinitarian, and that means you're polytheistic. And I think that's actually not correct. I think monotheism is to do with the idea of God, and specifically, as we'll see later in the article, God understood to be a fundamental divine person. And so I would say you're a monotheist if you believe that there is one fundamental divine person. But you are Trinitarian if you just believe that there are three divine persons, not taking into account anything to do with fundamentality. And so Unitarian will be someone who um, who who believes that there is one divine person, and then a Unitarian will be monotheist because they believe that divine person is fundamental. Whereas a Trinitarian would be an individual that believes that there are three divine persons and then they'll be monotheists because they would say, well, at least, well, just one of those divine persons is fundamental. And so I would say that the passages that you see in John 17, John 20, 1 Corinthians 8, 
favor the idea of monotheism. And so I think Trinitarians can affirm this passage without any problems and not then, you know, be sort of falling into the, the category of Unitarianism. I think you can affirm this passage in a clear way and not try to, you know, say, oh, actually, it might be talking about the Trinitarian God, the triune God. I think you can easily say that this is speaking about the Father. And so this grounds our monotheistic worldview. But then we can also affirm this to be Trinitarian because it doesn't negate from there being three divine persons as well. Well, yeah, those three passages support monotheism, but specifically a monotheism where the one God is the Father and not where the one God is the Trinity. That Branson definition of Trinitarianism as just any theology in which there are three divine persons, it has a kind of odd result because then in that sense, Trinitarianism would not require monotheism. So if somebody just simply had three gods that were three divine persons, then that would be dubbed a Trinitarian theology. Whereas I think just by definition, it's supposed to be monotheistic. And generally the understanding is that it's the Trinity that's the one God, right? If I pick up the Catholic catechism, I can find language that sounds like what Branson wants it to say, you know, quoting the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and so on. But then I run across a sentence like, we must believe in no one but God, colon, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's clear there that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are somehow the one God, right? It's the Trinity that's the one God. So um, I think this is something which I bring out in part in my article, but I don't go in depth into it. It's something that I will be hopefully publishing on later. But I think we first need to understand that the term or the word God is an ambiguous word. Indeed. Yeah, a lot of people use the word God in different ways. So it's an ambiguous word. Now, what I try to do in the article specifically is to try and say, well, let's precisify this by saying within a Trinitarian worldview, there are at least two ways to understand the word God or two senses. There's a primary sense and there is a secondary sense. The primary sense is the use of the word God as a name. So I, I call it the nominal sense in the article. And then the secondary sense is the predicative sense. It's just simply when you say that there are divine beings. So someone can be predicated the term God if they have the divine nature or if they have the properties that are necessary and sufficient for being divine. And so there are these sort of two senses of it. Now, this aspect was in the paper, but this bit I'm saying now wasn't, but it's something, like I said, I want to sort of write on a little bit later. I think it's not just that there are primary and secondary senses. There are also primary and secondary usages of the word God, and these will be within the senses themselves. So what I mean by that is, so let's say we're going with a primary sense. So the word God used in a nominal way as a name. I believe within scripture and within church history, there is a primary and secondary, and I'll even say a tertiary usage of the word as a name. So I would say the primary usage of the nominal sense of the word God in scripture and in church history is ascribable to the Father. The Father is named God, and that's clear in scripture. And it's clear throughout church history, as you see within the Nicene Creed and the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed, as we see in the first sentence, we believe in one God, the Father. So it's used as a name for the Father. That's its primary usage. But you'll also see in Scripture that the nominal sense of the word God is also used for the Son. 
but it's a very limited usage, very, very limited. I think there's only a few passages that can, where you see Hotheos used for the sun. So it's very limited and they're disputed as well. But just mm -hmm. going with this usage, there's a secondary usage for the sun. And then in church history, you see also for the spirit in certain places. But then there's also a tertiary usage, which I say is the sort of the third way of using it is for the Trinity. And so you don't, and I would evidently say you don't see this in the New Testament, but you see this usage in church history. So not in the creeds, so the, the two creeds that I stated before, but you see in church history, and you've brought this out in your work, that certain theologians do refer to the Trinity as God. And I would say that's the nominal usage of it. Yeah, it's very clear in some of the latter Catholic councils, such as uh, Fourth Lateran from 1215 or the Council of Basel, etc. from 1445. Yes, yes you, you exactly. could find yes. real crystal clear uses where they're using God to mean the Trinity. Yes, yeah. And they're using it as a name. It's not like it's a predicative sort of usage. So it mm -hmm. is used as a name. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there are two senses, nominal and predicative. And then just looking at the nominal sense, this usage of the word God as a name is used in a primary usage for the Father, a secondary usage for the Son, and maybe the Spirit sometimes. And then you have this sort of third usage for uh, the Trinity. Now, Which is not in Scripture, right? That's a later, like Augustine era kind of thing. Yeah, so I, I would say that it doesn't refer to, it, it, sorry, in the New Testament, you will not find it in reference to the Trinity. Yeah. I, I will definitely say, I'm happy to say that. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to say by this is that you see usage of the name for each of these individuals. So you have the, the Father, you have the Son and the Spirit in a secondary way, and then you have a sort of third and tertiary way for the Trinity. Now, what I would then say is that you do see this usage in play, but it doesn't negate from its primary usage. And so the primary sense in the nominal sense for, is, um, for God is as a name, and the primary usage is for the Father. And so what we then have throughout church history is this affirmation that, yes, there is one God who is the Father. But then there is also a secondary usage, which is for the Son, and there's a third or tertiary usage for the Trinity. And I would say over time, the, the sort of third and tertiary usage, which was later, sort of became more predominant, but that didn't negate from the primary usage in reference to the Father. And I would say the primary usage is the one that grounds monotheism, that we are monotheistic because we hold to there being only one God who bears the name God in this primary sort of usage way. And so what I'm, I'm trying to say to you is that I think we need to have a pluralistic view for the usage of the word, because I think sometimes, I think with this sort of debate that I've seen with yourself and Bo, it seems to be that there's, a, there's sort of a, on your side, there's, there's a um, sort of a clear sort of evidence that you're showing that, well, it's used for the Trinity. And then on Bo's side, well, you're saying, actually, maybe it's not, it's used for you know, it's, it's, that's a wrong interpretation. It's just solely ascribable to the Father. I don't think that's so. I think, yeah, there are usages for each of these individuals, but then they, we can understand, is that the primary usage? Is that the most important usage or not? I would say in scripture, it's shown to be for the Father. In church history, specifically in the, at Nicaea and at Constantinople, it's for the Father. And so the grounding of monotheism we need to see is through this primary usage for the Father, and not so much for this later usage, or the third usage, which is for the Trinity, which you do see in official doc, uh, sort of documents in, in the Catholic Church and things like that.
Now, this nominal usage, I mean, to call it that is to say it's, it's kind of a name-like usage of the word, right? Similar to a proper name, but not quite a proper name, like Joshua or Dale. It would be presupposed that this refers to a single thing, and, and you mentioned different individuals that this, in, in your view, the word God can refer to, namely Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or the Trinity. Is the Trinity an individual in your view? Is it a thing? Is it an entity? Yeah, I, I would say it's an entity. I'll say it's, it's a collective. Um, so, I mean, obviously, someone might say it seems to be the case that in these documents where you see the Trinity being referred to as God, it's used as a, you know, with a singular reference term. Yeah, and called he and so on. Sure. Is a collective a mere plurality or is it a compound thing of some sort, like a thing with parts uh, or members? I'm working through this with another article that sort of brings into account composition as identity. But I would say, yes, I'm, I'm sort of happy to affirm that it is sort of a composite entity that's composed of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But again, I mean, I don't think, because obviously that will throw, you know, a few issues in. Well, if that being is God, then how could it have sort of, you know, the Father as one part, the Son as his part, and the Spirit as a part. But then that's why for me, the monarchical sort of aspect is extremely important, because I would say what I ground this idea of God on is really on the Father. He is the one who bears the name in a primary sense, in a primary usage. And so he that's the most relevant usage for the word God. So even though we do have the Trinity being understood to be God, I don't have a problem with that because at the end of the day, that's just a third usage of the word. And I don't think it's the most important usage of the word, even though it has become the more, most prevalent. Yeah, by saying it's a thing, I mean, I think you're granting that you have to be saying that it's a thing which is numerically distinct from the other three. So in some sense, there are four things there. I guess my question would be, does the Trinity have the divine nature or essence? Um, no, in that, I, I would say it has it, if it does have it, it has it in a derivative sense, in that it derives, for example, omnipotence and omniscience from its parts. So it derives it from its parts. So I wouldn't say it has it in and of itself. But I, I didn't really want to go deeper into this sort of composition as identity, because I think it can just sort of get extremely complex. But I think there are ways to work around this with composition as identity, where the Trinity is taken to be an entity, taken to be a concrete thing. However, because of the notion of composition as identity, you can you can take it to be identical to each of the persons. And the, the specific version of composition as identity that I, I favor is by Donald Baxter, because his specific view of it allows a whole to be numerically identical to each of its parts. Normally, you would see with the sort of composition as identity literature, you'll see, well, a whole is taken to be uh, numerically identical to the collective, the collection of its parts instead of each of its parts. But I think that doesn't really deal with the problem. Um, what I would say with this composition as identity sort of aspect that Baxter puts forward, you actually can have the Trinity existing as a thing, yet it's nothing over and above its parts. It's identical to the Father, identical to the Son, identical to the Spirit. Now, obviously, Leibniz's law and all those sort of things play in a part, but there are ways around it with Baxter's metaphysics. But I think just going into that is gonna is gonna get extremely extremely deep and complex. But but I think there are ways to work around it. But I would affirm the Trinity being an entity, um, because I think that's how it's assumed throughout church history. In that, like you said, those passages 
that speak about the Trinity, they will refer to it as a existing thing. They would use the personal pronouns for it and things like that. So you have to affirm its existence, yeah. which is trying to then square it with the other persons as well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a Swinburnian view in that the Trinity is strictly going to be an it, not a he, because it won't itself you know, have power and knowledge and will and so on. But in some sense, it'll be the same as things which do. But yeah, okay, let's get back to the article and the work that you're doing in this. So you have this thesis you call monarchy. There are three entities, Father, Son, and Spirit. They have the divine nature, but the one God in the primary sense is just the Father alone. Yes. We mentioned last episode my piece on counting gods. I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying that the Father is a god and the Son and Spirit are deities which aren't gods, in my sense, because the Father is ultimate, but in the sense I explained there, but the Son and Spirit are not, because you embrace the processions ideas that are in Trinitarian tradition, right? Yes. Um, so I, I would say in part, yes, that article is a great article. And I think hopefully all your listeners have read it because it's really illuminating for these sort of issues. Um, I would have, yeah, I would affirm what you're saying, but I would always qualify and say, well, where again, when we're using the word God, because of its ambiguity, what do we mean by it? And so in its primary sense, as a name, it is ascribable to the Father. And this is not taking into account that primary usage, secondary usage stuff. Just taking it's normally ascribable to the Father alone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so it's normally ascribable to the Father alone. Yeah, that doesn't negate from the Son and Spirit also being called God. But again, it would be then an equivocation that you're using the word God in a different sense. You're using it in a predicative sense. So you're saying they are God, but basically what you're saying is that they are divine. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each God in a secondary predicative sense because they are each uh, consubstantial and divine. Um Yet there's only one of them, the Father, who can be called God as a name because he fulfills the conditions to be that. I think we'll probably go on to that with the idea of fundamentality, but he fulfills the conditions that are needed to be called God as a name, but yeah. the Son and the Spirit do not. All three are equally divine so long as divine does not imply fundamentality, as you get into later in the paper. Yes. I mean, yep. the point about the Son being called God in a name-like fashion I don't think it's really that controversial. You know, Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, if it's translated in the way it normally is, the author quotes a psalm and it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And from the context, he's addressing the Son there when he says, O God. Right? So it's not ha theos, but it's evocative. It's interpreted as evocative uh, form of the noun theos. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then a little bit past, he says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Okay, so now this God, who's the God of the first God, that's obviously the Father. So there are two different ones being referred to as God in that passage. Again, if the translation of verse eight is right. So that's something I think Unitarians and Trinitarians should agree on, even though it's a rare usage. Yeah, for sure. It's very rare. I mean, I think Jesus is referred to as God between zero and eight times, as best I can tell. And it depends on what you say about certain translation problems and certain textual problems and certain interpretive problems. But yeah, the main usage of the New Testament, clearly, when it says God, it's, it's basically always the Father, unless there's some specific reason in the context where it just couldn't be the Father that they're talking about. And that's how textual scholars explain it. When the Trinity's podcast returns, 
is the theology being suggested here, quote, Aryan? You've just said that the Father, Son, and Spirit are divine. However, only the Father is, in some sense, fundamental because he's the source of the other two. And so, why isn't this a bad kind of ontological subordinationism? You know, why isn't this a heresy? The intellectually lazy will just immediately whip out the label Arian and say, You got two different kinds of divinity here. It's just Arian, end of story, close the book. Sijuati's a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) So explain what you're doing in the rest of the article, um, expounding on fundamentality and how you eventually would answer that kind of uh, rough objection. Okay, perfect. So in contemporary metaphysics, you have this notion of fundamentality that's become very popular. Really, it just sort of means that an entity is fundamental if they are sort of the primitive rock bottom thing in the hierarchical structure of reality. Mm-hmm. And then you find this, you find various sort of philosophers and metaphysicians who are trying to then make sense of this. Well, what does it mean to be rock bottom and primitive and all those sort of things? And so there's a prominent philosopher called Karen Bennett, who's done great work on this, where she sort of takes fundamentality to reside around two further notions, independence and completeness. Now, independence and completeness are terms which, you know, some people might look at and say, well, what does that mean? It sounds a bit strange, independent and, and sort of being complete. Does that mean that you're not, you know, you're, you're made up fully? Well, when we're sort of using that term in this sort of fundamentality framework, it needs to be understood in light of the notion of building. Now, building is something referenced by Karen Bennett in her work where it's sort of a term or a notion that sort of ties together certain relations that we find in reality. So you might find relations like composition, constitution, set formation, realization, micro-based determination, causation, which is more controversial, but that's added in there. And then you'll have this notion called grounding. Now, building is sort of a term that speaks about this family resemblance class of relations. These relations are all sort of similar to each other in some way. Now, taking into account then these notions that we find in these relations within building, you then can further precisify the notion of independence and completeness. And so to be independent is just basically not to be built by anything. But then you then need to index that to a relation. And so I, in the paper, go with grounding. And so sort of further persistifying that, you say to be independent is just to be ungrounded. Now, grounding is a very sort of popular relation at the moment that people are studying um, in metaphysics. And it's just basically a ordering relation that's asymmetric, irreflexive, transitive, just sort of induces a partial order over all the entities within its domain. And so to be ungrounded just means that you don't have, you're not sort of the output of this relation. And so you're ungrounded, nothing grounds your existence. 
And that's what it means to be independent. And then what it means to be complete just means that you you ultimately ground everything else. And so to be fundamental is to be independent and complete. And then sort of in a more fine-grained fashion, that means just to be ungrounded and to be the ground, ultimate ground of everything else. Okay, so that's the notion of fundamentality that I was working with in okay. this paper. Okay, so for instance, a metaphysical naturalist would think that the fundamental facts are all physical facts, like would be described by a perfected physics and those facts are what grounds all the other facts, like, I guess, mental facts, assuming that there are such. Would that be an uncontroversial example of grounding within philosophical discussion? Yes, exactly. You would have that sort of thing in play there. So you'll see a lot of metaphysicians. So someone I really like and who features in this article is Jonathan Schaefer. And at the moment, he's sort of focusing a lot on physicalism. And trying to apply sort of this notion of fundamentality and grounding to further elucidate the philosophy of mind issues and mind-body stuff. And he believes that you can use this notion in a way that you can see sort of the physical facts, for example, um, or, men- or sort of, let's say, physical states of the brain, they ground the mental states. And so that will be a relation that you see there. And so the physical states are more fundamental than the mental states. That's what someone would say with this view in mind. Mm-hmm. However, where you'll sort of break down with this sort of issue is that the physical states wouldn't themselves be absolutely fundamental. They wouldn't be fundamental as it is because there'll be something that's grounding them. And so, like I said, to be fundamental in the way that I'm using the word means that you are ultimately ungrounded and then you serve the role of grounding everything else. And so, for example, it could be if someone holds to things like mirological atoms, Okay, that sort of compose and constitute everything. So someone could say, well, ultimately, those mereological atoms are not grounded by anything else. So they're ungrounded. And then they ground everything else in the hierarchical structure of reality. And so they would be then understood to be fundamental, the fundamental things that exist in reality, because they ground everything else and they themselves are ungrounded. Now, obviously, that's in a non-theistic worldview, because a theistic worldview, you would say, well, God is the entity that serves that role. And so the mereological atoms are them themselves grounded by God or something like that. And so, yeah, so I use this notion of fundamentality, grounding. And so fundamentality just meaning ungrounded and the ground of everything else to further elucidate and illuminate the monarchy of the father doctrine. And so what you sort of see in my paper is an application of this metaphysical concept to this issue. And so I try to bring clarity for what it means for uh, the Father to be the one God. And so why we would then say that the Son and Spirit are not God in that sense of the word. Now, just to clarify something before I sort of further explain the, the application of this, is that I'm not saying that there are different ways to be divine, or there are different senses of divinity. I, wouldn't, I would not say that. And you sort of see objections raised against individuals like William Lane Craig, mm-hmm. who people like Leftow say he's doing that. Well, I'm not doing that in this article. What I'm saying that there's ambiguity on is specifically the word God, not the word divine. So I'm not saying that there are different ways or different senses of divinity. No, I think that's a univo- there's only a univocal sense of the word, and it's applicable equally to the Father, Son, and Spirit. But where I say that there is a distinction to be made is surrounding the word God. God is ambiguous, and so we can use it as a name, and we can use it as a predicate. And I'm saying it's solely used as a name for the Father, but it's then able to be used as a predicate for each of them in an equal fashion. 
And so that will sort of hopefully water off that issue of people saying, well, it seems to be Aryan in a way, because I'm not saying there are different ways. I'm not saying the son is divine in a different way from the father. No, I'm saying he is divine as the father is divine. And so you have the homoousios doctrine there. But what I'm also saying is, well, the when we use the word God, there's only one individual in the Trinity that fulfills that condition of being God in the nominal sense, and that's the father. And you can see that by sort of the way that I use fundamentality, because what I end up saying in the article is to say that to be God in the nominal sense, you have to basically fulfill two conditions. You have to be divine and you have to be fundamental in the way that I was defining the word before. You have to be ungrounded and you have to then be the ultimate ground of everything else. Now, clearly, if we were looking the person to the Trinity, only one of them fulfills those two conditions. That is the Father. The other two fulfill one of the conditions in that they are divine, but they are not fundamental. They are derivative because they lack ungroundedness. So they are grounded by the Father and they lack completeness because they are not the ultimate ground of everything else because they ground everything else in reality, but they don't ground one thing, which is the Father, because by definition, he is ungrounded. And so there's one thing that they don't ground, and so they cannot be understood to be complete, and so they do not fulfill the conditions for being fundamental. And so that's why I then say then that they cannot be understood to be God in the nominal sense because they do not fulfill these conditions. And so they are not fundamental. Um, they're not the fundamental divine persons. They are divine persons, but they are derivative divine persons because they are grounded by the Father. And so what we then have, sort of the final way that I state the monarchy of the father doctrine is, well, specifically for the second condition, which is the one that I really was focusing on, is that the one God in the nominal sense, who is the fundamental, i.e. independent and complete divine person, is numerically identical to one of the persons, the father, who is the sole ground, i.e. builder of the son and the spirit. And so why we have the father being numerically identical to God is because he is the fundamental divine person. And the Son and the Spirit are not. They don't fulfill those uh, one of the conditions. And so they are divine, but they are not God in the nominal sense. And that's sort of the conclusion that I reach before sort of trying to deal with an important subordination objection. So the view depends on accepting eternal begetting of the Son by the Father and the eternal proceeding of the Spirit from the Father or the Father and the Son, right? And you're happy to ground those in just later church tradition, you grant that those are not taught in scripture? So I would say that you do need to affirm the sort of eternal generation procession of the Son and the Spirit um, to hold to this idea. Because if you just have, you know, sort of you'll find in a in a sort of a William Lane Craig view where it doesn't seem to be that there are any procession relations in the Trinity. And so in some way, you know, they're all sort of relationally equal. But then you won't be able to ground this doctrine at all because then there'll be no reason to say that the Son and the Spirit are not fundamental. They seem to be fundamental. Um, and so, yeah, you do need to affirm this eternal processions doctrine, which I think, and in answer to your question, I do believe it's taught in Scripture, but I would always say that it's open to interpretation, Scripture. And so Scripture cannot be divorced from tradition. So you'll sort of, I'll be showing my cards for the type of um, ecclesiology mm -hmm. that I hold to. Yeah, you're granting it wasn't understood that way originally, but you're saying that because of church tradition, we ought to take it that way. Because from third century on, basically, it was understood that way. 
Okay, so I, I I'm not a biblical scholar, so I won't sort of battle on this issue. But I I would not I wouldn't come out and say that it wasn't understood in that way. I, I wouldn't come out and say that. Maybe there's uh, a debate that you, that could be had, and I think they should mm-hmm. be had on this. But I probably won't be the best person for that. But I wouldn't come out and saying that actually it wasn't understood to be interpreted correctly in that way until the third century. But what I'm trying to say is that there are possible interpretations there where it could be just simply talking to the incarnate state of Christ, for example, when we're speaking about the generation. And so it's not understood to be an eternal generation. So I see that to be a possible explanation. I see it, the eternal generation doctrine to be a possible explanation as well. But I think if we're then going to try and understand the veracity of the positions, we need to hold to some form of author- authoritative tradition to correct our interpretive sort of um, understanding of it. And so I would say tradition is like you can u- you know use a torch sort of analogy. It's like a torch that shines you know on the correct one saying, well, this is the interpretation we need to go with. And so I would say when we divorce scripture from tradition, then we don't have any reason to say, actually, well, this alternative explanation could be the correct one. Because someone could come with their hermeneutical strategies and say, well, it leads us only to a human understanding of generation, that it was Christ's incarnate state. But someone who, um, you know, who uses hermeneutical strategies as well, they could come and say, well, it leads to an eternal generation doctrine. And so I would say you have these viable options in play, but tradition allows us to then correctly understand which one should be taken as the interpretation of it. But then again, obviously, this could be argued on. And I would just say, put up my hands and say, I'm not a biblical scholar on the issue. And maybe I should be should be better on it. But I wouldn't sort of go and say I can argue for this position very, very much in depth. But that will probably be my understanding of it. When the Trinity's podcast returns. Is there trouble for the suggested theology when it comes to the ontological subordination of the Son and Spirit? Let's get into this objection and your reply relating to ontological subordination. I mean, what strikes a lot of analytic theologians as weird, I think, about this kind of view that you're suggesting is that divinity is neutral as concerns fundamentality. Like, if you know that a uh, a being is divine, that being might be fundamental, but it might might also be derivative just as well. People like Bill Craig and Ryan Mullins have developed this in the literature, which I'm sure you've read on this topic. And I think the roots of it maybe are just thinking of God as a perfect being or as the greatest possible being. And these sort of Christian philosopher theologians say, hey, it looks like fundamentality or just aseity existing through oneself. These are part of what would make a perfect being perfect. And so... And perfection is another way of uh, investigating what divinity is. So divinity has to include, you know, what you're calling fundamentality in this paper. Now, what the Cappadocian fathers do, they're in this argument with this, uh, quote, Arian guy named Eunomius, 
and he says something to the effect that he understands what divinity is. It's it's being ungenerated. And they say, nope, nope, nope. That's you can't understand divinity. They kind of just stipulate that divinity doesn't include underivativeness or fundamentality. But it seems to me that you're trying to grapple with this objection head on by people like Mullins. And so walk us through how that works, how you answer this Osseity objection, right? So the objection would be to be fully divine and perfect requires Osseity, but then for your theology, the Son and Spirit don't have full divinity. And so it's not really orthodox then. Okay. So yeah, that's sort of the way someone might put the objection. In the article, you can see that I actually give two sort of ways to answer the objection. So what's called sort of the ontological subordination problem. So Mullins specifically, who's the individual that I interact with, but I believe that my solution, the two solutions that I provide can also apply to Craig's sort of issues as well that he raises. But what we sort of see is someone might look and read this paper and say, well, this sounds, you know, this sounds great, but I mean, if we're going to hold to some form of pro-Nicene Trinitarianism, so orthodoxy, we can't have a subordination of the Son and the Spirit to the Father. But then what you sort of see with the work of Mark Edwards and Mullins, uh, so Ryan Mullins himself, is that they sort of try to identify and precisify the term subordination. So we use this term all the time, but it's what does it actually mean? And sort of, you know, as philosophers, we all sort of like getting nitty gritty into definitions and say, what do these stuff mean? Well, Helpfully, Edwards and Mullins provide sort of different categories of subordinationism. And so you sort of see three that I interact with. There's a fourth one as well, but it's not really relevant to the issue. But the three that I sort of bring out in the paper are ontological subordinationism, which is the idea that the Son and Spirit are subordinate to the Father in that they have an essence which is inferior to the Father's. And then you have etiological subordinationism, which is the idea that the Son and the Spirit are subordinate to the Father in that they are caused to exist by him. And then you have axiological subordinationism, which is the idea that they are subordinate to the father, yet they are equal to him in essence, but are solely inferior to him in rank or status. And so sort of when I get into this sort of issue, I then try to say, okay, well, which form of subordinationism is the model that I'm providing affirming? What is it sort of required for someone to hold to? Well, I would say definitely hold, you have to hold to some form of subordinationism, but is it a problematic form? Well, what I say clearly is that you see that there is an axiological subordinationism, that yes, because the Father is fundamental and the Son and Spirit are derivative, so they are grounded and and non-complete, they are in a way inferior in rank or status to the Father. Yet, as I've tried to sort of hammer on throughout the paper, they are not inferior in their essence. They have the same nature as the Father, but they are inferior in rank or status. So you have to be committed to this axiological subordinationism. And so I would say, and I think Edwards and and Mullins say as well, that this form of subordinationism was not problematic in church history. It was never taken to be a problem as such. Except by Eunomius, but yeah. (laughs) Yes, yeah, sorry. And lots of other non-Nicenes, but keep going. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I mean the pro-Nicenes. So obviously it depends who you believe is the correct one, but let's just go with pro-Nicenes. They didn't see that to be problematic. What was the problem for them was the first one, which is ontological subordinationism. So they would say, no, you could not hold to that. So you couldn't hold to, for example, Arianism, which as sort of scholarship has shown recently, didn't play a big part in the fourth century, but it was problematic because Arius and his followers 
Um, they did affirm the son to be inferior in essence to the father. But then we also see in the latter half of the fourth century, who was, I would say, more important on the issue, Eunomius and Aetius as well, who argued for the position of an ontological subordination of the son to the father. So that they have a different essence. And so the, the father is greater in essence in his ontology. And so someone would ask, well, does that lead you into sort of an Arian slash Eunomian position? And I would say, no, I think the monarchy of the father doesn't. And I provide two ways to show that it doesn't. And the way that I do that is by focusing on the sort of the center of the issue here for Mullins and others is the property of our saity. Now, our saity in the article that I interact with, so Mullins' article, is defined as not having a cause for one's existence. So Mullins defines it as not having a cause for one, one's existence. Now, I say, okay, well, if that's the problem, if we are saying that there's an ontological subordination here because the Son and Spirit have a cause for their existence and the Father doesn't, then yes, they are different in their essence because they lack this arseity property. And so I say, okay, well, if that's the definition, let's see if this is problematic for the, the model that I'm putting forward. In the first sort of solution, I say, well, it doesn't seem to be the case because if correctly understood, the Son and the Spirit are uncaused. Each of the persons are uncaused in my model. Because if you remember, building, the relation of building is a class of relations. And one of the relations that you find there is causation. And I'm not saying in the article that the Son and the Spirit are caused by the Father. I say that the fundamentality relation or fundamentality notion there needs to be indexed to the relation of grounding. And so technically, if we are, you know, sort of going with this, the sun and the spirits are grounded. And so they are derivative in that sense, but they are actually uncaused because I do not index fundamentality and derivativeness to causation. And so technically, if you go with this building model that I'm giving, the Son and the Spirit are equally uncaused as the Father is. And so they have our saity defined in the way that Mullins does in his paper. And so they are uncaused as the Father is. So they have our saity. They just lack it when it's indexed to grounding. And so I say, actually, well, if we go with that definition, it doesn't seem to be problematic. We don't have any different essence between the persons. But then I say, you know what? Some people might say that's a quick move. And so, you know, there can be a better definition given. And I do believe that's so. There can be a better definition given of our saity because I think what Mullins does, and I've seen in other works that he doesn't do this, but specifically in that paper, he just focuses on causation. And so he says, like I said, our saity is to be uncaused. But then I say, you know what, let's go and get a more generalized definition. So I then give another definition of our saity. And mm -hmm. I say it's defined as not depending upon another distinct entity for one's existence and or nature. Now, it seems to be the case that this definition would be problematic for the solution I gave, because it would say that you cannot be the output of any building relation, be it causation, be it grounding, be it anything. Right. If you are RSA, you do not depend upon anything. You are not grounded. You're not caused. You're not, you're not sort of built in any way by any entity. Now, if that's the case, and we're going with that definition... And then it's quite clearly so that the Son and the Spirit are non-Arse. They are not Arse according to that definition. And the Father is because he's ungrounded, he's uncaused, he's everything, okay, in that way. 
And so I say then, well, if that is the definition that we're going with, it seems like we know that we need another solution to show that this ontological subordination problem does not plague the model that I'm proposing. And so what I do then, you sort of see in a footnote, I say, well, you can go with the first solution, but that's sort of like a starter. If you're going to, you know, a meal, that's a starter sort of to your meal. And so we need something a little bit more filling. And so I try to give another solution, which I think is my main solution to the problem. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Sijuadi's main solution. Now, this solution that I try to provide does not focus on building, grounding, and all those things anymore. And it focuses on something else in metaphysics. And that is specifically properties. And I try to say, if we are going to understand our seity correctly, we need to understand what type of property our seity is. Now, the way I do that is by saying, well, in contemporary metaphysics, properties are understood to be extrinsic or intrinsic. Now, there's sort of a battle going on in metaphysics about, well, what do these terms mean? I mean, extrinsic and intrinsic. So I sort of show in the article at the beginning, you see people like Kim who try to show that it's basically just not to do with being dependent upon your surroundings in any way. So you're unaccompanied. And then you have David Lewis who comes in and basically says, actually, that doesn't seem to be a correct understanding of intrinsicality and extrinsicality. And so what we then sort of see in the article is that I try to explicate Ray Langton and David Lewis's conception of intrinsicality. And so the way that they understand intrinsicality is, well, basically, there's a main condition, which I call the independence criterion. And that's basically that a property to be intrinsic needs to fulfill the following criterion. It needs to be so that it's possible for a lonely object to possess that property. It also needs to be possible for a lonely object to lack that property. It also needs to be possible for an accompanied object to possess that property. And it also needs to be possible for an accompanied object to lack that property. Now, to be accompanied and lonely are sort of the key things there. Now, to be accompanied just basically means that you have something else existing within the world that you are existing within. Okay, so if you are accompanied, you have something, whatever it is, existing in the world that you are existing in. Now, if you are lonely, you're an entity that doesn't have anything existing within it. You can exist and there is nothing else there with you in that sort of world. Now, that's a really basic way of understanding it. And sort of in the article, it's a little bit more persistified and defined, sort of, I would say, more rigorously. But basically, with this independence criterion, the majority, and I sort of bring this out in a footnote, the majority of philosophers take this to be a necessary condition of intrinsicality. A property to be intrinsic must fulfill this criterion. 
where a lot of people sort of doubt Langton and Lewis is not so much on this criterion, but it is in the added conditions that they bring in into account to make this a sufficient um, criterion. So it's a necessary criterion, but it's not sufficient because there are other sort of counterexamples that can be brought up. But the majority of philosophers say this needs to be in place for a property to be intrinsic. And so what I then do is then I show, well, given that this is taken by the majority of philosophers and metaphysicians to be a necessary condition of intrinsicality, is aseity correctly understood to be an intrinsic property or an extrinsic property? Well, I show it to be the case that actually it's an extrinsic property. And why it's so is because it cannot meet one of the conditions in the independence criterion, specifically condition B. It's possible for a lonely object to lack P. So what that means is that aseity is not a property that a lonely object could have. And why that is so is because its converse cannot be had by a lonely object. So this condition says, if this property is intrinsic, it's not so much that this property has to be possessed or can be possessed by a lonely object, but it also must be lacked by a lonely object. But can that be so for our seity? Because if we remember, our seity just means that you are independent. But then the opposite of that, so the converse property of that, would be to be a dependent object. And so then that means, well, can you have a lonely object that is dependent? Well, obviously not, because if it's dependent, there must be some other entity that's depending on. And so then what I show is that actually criterion B is not held by our seity. It's not in place for our seity. And so it cannot be taken to be an intrinsic property because the converse of that property cannot be held by a lonely object. The object must be accompanied. So what you're driving at is that greatness and deity will necessarily have to do with intrinsic properties only. Greatness is going to supervene only on intrinsic properties and divinity or deity will only have to do with intrinsic property. Aseity is not an intrinsic property. It has to be extrinsic. And so therefore lesser deity or lesser greatness cannot follow from lacking independence, from being dependent. Yes, that's exactly it. You know, when I read your paper, I was worried precisely about that condition B, that to be intrinsic, a property has to be such that it's possible for a lonely object to lack it. I wonder if this will prevent essential divine attributes from being intrinsic attributes. So consider perfect power or omnipotence. So presumably only God could have that, right? And if we suppose a possible world in which only God exists... Well, it's an essential perfection, so he couldn't lack it. And yet, it still seems like it's an intrinsic property of God, just that he's perfect in power. Okay, so, yeah, what I mean correctly understood about that condition is, if God was to lack, let's say, power or perfect power, what that means is just that he has the opposite property, that he's weak. So, mm -hmm. let's say we, we don't... Which isn't possible, say, right? Yeah, yeah, but let's just say... Pers impossible. Let's say it was so that God could lack that property and so have the converse property, then that will be so that actually it would not be problematic. It will. So it's not saying that we need to judge this by solely on God. We should say at a general sense. So if this entity is just a general object, can this property be lacked? But you can have that for power and perfect power this general object, but you cannot have it for something like our seity. And so 
if sort of the way that you're arguing for this, if this was to be so, you would say, well, if we're just taking God as a case, this seems to be problematic. But I'm saying, let's not just take God as a case. Let's say generally, at a general level, our satiety cannot be had by an object that's lonely because it cannot have the converse of that property. But per power or perfect power or perfect knowledge, any of those things can be had because the opposite of those properties can be had by a lonely object. They can actually have these properties. And so it seems to be the case of the general sense that actually those properties stay intrinsic, but our satiety just seems to be any entity cannot have it in an intrinsic sense. It's an extrinsic property. I was just taking the criteria to have to do with metaphysical possibility. If I'm following you, you're saying, no, let's consider both possible and impossible situations. Let's just talk about kind of what's conceivable. And then we can, we can talk about the impossible situation where God is not omnipotent. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that. There's, there's a more general worry too, which is Maybe uh, one way of explaining aseity is that you're not dependent on anything else, but you might still think that there's just a property that's positive there. It does have the implication that nothing else is the source of you or grounds you, but uh, you just might right, look at the Latin phrase, ase, through oneself. It could just be understood as existing sort of on one's own power. And if it's taken in that way, then it just it looks like it just is intrinsic. If there is anything else, then it can't be the ground of one. But one would still have this even if one was the only thing that existed. Yeah, so, I mean, that would be the case. And that's not problematic because that would fulfill condition A of the independence criterion. So I'm not saying the lonely object cannot possess this. What I'm saying is, that, well, it also needs to be the case that it could lack it. And so what Lewis is and Langton are trying to say is that an intrinsic property should not have any relevance to the surroundings of that individual yeah that individual yeah, i'm saying that, that might be a little too strong that's my point yeah yeah I, I mean it could be i'm just sort of my my modus operandi for things is is sort of like let's sort of say we take these metaphysical notions that are in play that the majority of philosophers take to actually be correct this should also be applicable in a theistic context as well and i think i'm trying to show that this is and uh, sort of the, the, the most important move that I make there is actually buried in one of the, the, the pages where I define what a great making property is according to Mullins. So Mullins in his paper, so this which I think page three, he states a great making property to be an intrinsic property mm -hmm. that would improve the greatness of any being that has it. Yeah. And so I think that's a common assumption. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. So so if this is in play, if this intrinsicality sort of issue is there and this property is shown to be extrinsic according to this criterion, then it, it's not the case that our satiety seems to be a great making property. It seems to be a property that a being can have, but it doesn't improve the greatness of it because it's not an intrinsic property of it. And so the homoousion doctrine is about intrinsic properties, great making properties that are shared by the persons. And so by the father having our satiety and the son and spirit lacking it, that's not a problem because it's an extrinsic property. Now, unless someone can provide another criterion of intrinsicality, then, I mean, there'll have to be reasons to show that this is an incorrect one. Because like I was saying to you, this is assumed to be an understanding that's necessary. It's a criterion that's necessary for intrinsicality. Mm -hmm. And so according to this criterion, so my argument could be weak in that it's conditional saying, if this criterion is correct, 
then our aseity is an extrinsic property. It's not an intrinsic property. And so it cannot be classed as a grain-making property. And so if the sun and spirit lack it, it's not problematic. Well, I like what you're doing in that you have a specific argument that this this cannot be something implied by divinity or required by perfection. In that sense, it's a lot better than the Cappadocians because they have this view that seems to me like it's kind of a ridiculous overreaction to Eunomius. He says divinity is being ingenerate, and they're like, no, you can't know anything about divinity. That's crazy. And so therefore, you can't know that divinity implies or includes you know, fundamentality. That seems like a just a nutty view. I mean, don't we know that divinity implies being uncreated, you know, being perfectly good, being perfect in power, knowledge? Like we know lots of things about divinity, even if we can't give a full definition or say everything that it implies. So I like this, you know, it's a it's a directed armament. It's not, it's not burning the whole house down just so that somebody can't come in. It's trying to lock the door. Um <laughs> I like that way of putting it. (laughs) But yeah, I'm still pretty worried about the criterion and um, just about, you know, why not take it to be a property that really is intrinsic? It's just that it does have implications about other things, if there are any other things, you know? Yeah, I I would, sorry, just in response to that, first thing you said, I... I mean, obviously, I love the Cappadocians and I respect them very much so. But I also respect Eunomius. Um, and I think the way that sometimes he, he's been treated uh, wasn't the best because I think his arguments were philosophically rigorous. And so just dismissing mm-hmm. them is not is not to be done. I think yeah. we need to take them into account as philosophers and say, well, what merit does he have to say here? And, and are there issues that he raises? And I think he does raise issues. And Mullins and, and Craig have raised similar issues as well. But what I would just say is, well, if we are doing philosophy of religion, and I understand philosophy of religion and analytic theology to be utilizing the tools and techniques and methods of analytic philosophy to clarify the meaning and justification of religious belief. And so I think in this specific case, the belief in this about the father being fundamental and the son spirit lacking this fundamentality Well, I think we can help the case here by using the tools and techniques of analytic philosophy. And something like I was trying to say is that it's been agreed upon by analytic philosophers who've worked on this issue that this seems to be a necessary condition for intrinsicality. And so what someone will need to do is, well, provide another criterion so not to be classed as, you know, sort of providing an ad hoc move here. So if we were to go with that sort of intuitive intrinsicality issue, I would just seem that seems a little bit ad hoc because we're like, we're saying, well, we want it to be intrinsic. It seems to be, but we can't really flesh out a good criterion that can apply in all cases. Because this is trying to say generally, it seems to be the case that an intrinsic property must fulfill the following, you know, the four criteria that I gave. And so we can all agree on that and say, okay, well, let's apply this to a theistic case. And so our seity, even though intuitively it might seem to be an intrinsic property, it doesn't fulfill B of the criterion. And so it cannot be, just categorically cannot be. And so I'd say unless, again, someone provides another criterion that it doesn't serve to counter examples to it, then I think, you know, there, there shouldn't be a reason that someone shouldn't take this as a correct one. And so if it is then taken as a correct one, then it seems to be the case that our seity is an extrinsic property. And so you do not have this problem of an ontological subordination because the son and spirit have the same essence as the father, yet they lack our seity. That means that they are not fundamental because they depend upon him. They're grounded by him. 
But that's not a problem because homoousion is only to do with intrinsic properties, great making properties, and aseity is not one of them, and so it's not an issue at all. Dr. Sijiwadi, thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much, Dale. I really appreciate it. This week's thinking music has been the track Green Monster by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. You'll also want to check out that blog post for links to resources which are relevant to this episode. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.